Hello everyone and welcome once again to another NLBMR holiday campaign webcast. I guess we would have to officially call this the last one of the holiday campaign before we move into uh, toward the spring now. Um, I'm John McKellar of Ballcaps and Bagpipes. And I'm the other half of Ballpacks, Ballcaps and Bagpipes. I screw it up every time. <laughs> and yes, uh, the owner of Dugout Classics and was involved in the thing there. And we have two exciting guests, plus Tad's come back to join us as per usual. Uh, so let's get started. Yep. Uh, first off, Happy New Year to you guys. Uh, we're going to go around to our two guests very shortly. Uh, Tad, let's go to you first off. Though, how has the holiday portion of the campaign? Uh, how has it? How has it done? And uh, what's been the kind of feedback from it? Uh, we're still getting results back from everybody on um, sales, but um, I, you know, the the holiday campaign was you know specifically more low key than the first campaign, right? So um, we didn't expect to, to you know, break any uh, records or anything like that. But what we expect um, just estimating is that the entire campaign from October through the end of the year will more than likely raise uh, over $30,000 um, for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Um, really, completely unexpected results you know 25,000 of that was raised during the first campaign in October um, so you know how much we we do here uh, or we have done in uh, December November is, is yet to be tallied but um, but certainly um, there's a lot of, of really talented people who did a lot of really cool things two of them are right here and um, I'm really excited to, to hear from them about uh, their work and and uh, how things how things went. Indeed, Tad. We'll get back to what's next uh, toward the end of the show. But like you say, let's uh, introduce our two guests. We uh, have two guy two well, two people who haven't been on the show before. Jason, this week we have Ellen Lindner, and we have Brian Callahan. Ellen, let's start with you. How are you? And uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm an illustrator. I really like baseball. I live in New York City. Um, I don't leave my house much. That's about me right now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we talked beforehand. You said you lived in the UK for a while. You're in Man Manhattan, right? Does that make you a Mets fan or a Yankees fan? Oh my God. Or are we got um, a fan for somewhere okay, else? Okay, okay. This is going to get bad and then it's going to get worse. Um, I am a Mets fan. I grew up on Long Island, which is hardcore Mets country. Um, the worst part is that I converted my husband, who's an English person, to be a Mets fan. I brought him into a suffering group. So, Things are looking up um, for the Mets. Sorry, what's that? Things are looking up for the Mets. Or are they? Every off season, people say things are looking up for the Mets. It's never <laughs> true. Not owner now now you got an owner <laughs> we got bobby axelrod the mates have spent the last 50 years looking up um, <laughs> they're also too short to box with god when it comes to so i have to say this was a loaded <laughs> question <laughs> yeah basically but yeah maybe i mean you this know, was a loaded question because john's a big yankee fan you know what you um, we can <laughs> We can coexist peacefully. And, and Brian is, you know, a real baseball expert. So if he says things are looking up, I believe it. I think they are. I think it's good. It's, uh, 
it's as promising as it's looked in a long time for, for Mets fans. And I'm a Yankees fan. So is this an ambush? Is this an attack? I'll <laughs> <laughs> be fair, Ellen. We're side on your side because me and Tad are Mariners fans and we wouldn't have Kelsenick if it wasn't for the Mets. So, you know, okay, 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 okay. I thought this was like an enemy of my enemy is my friend thing. But if you're just going to yeah. talk about that, then I don't want to hear about it. Uh, okay, we won't <laughs> talk about that. We won't bring that up. <laughs> Um, Every Brian, time I see Edmundias, I cry. Sorry, what was that? <laughs> Brian, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Um, uh, uh, my name is Brian Callahan, and uh, I live in Richmond, Virginia. I'm originally from New Jersey. And um, I, I just kind of, I've been in uh, the baseball business now for uh, the actual business of baseball, minor league baseball, since 2010. Um, a lifelong uh, baseball fan and then I just got back as a hobby into drawing and illustrating um, as I had an iPad and I saw you could do some things that were a little quicker than the traditional mediums and so I just got back into it and kind of uh, been able to marry the two of them and uh, was fortunate to um, uh, kind of come across the right people. Tad had this great vision and, and so I uh, had a lot of fun and I uh, was really proud to be a part of uh, what we all did collectively here this this fall and, and winter season. So, Jason, I know that you're itching and chomping at the bit to ask Brian this. So why don't we start off with Brian by asking um, about owning a minor league baseball team? Yeah. Um, I think there's one particular question that Jason would like to ask. So, Jason, I'll, I'll give you the, the pleasure here. Um, oh, I'm curious what question you think it is. I got plenty of questions for Brian. So. <laughs> I think the ultimate one that we the one that we pondered previously when we spoke to uh, a minor league, an ex minor league player, was uh, how, what are your thoughts and feelings on the changes, let's say, that have been made to the minor league setup in the last year or so? Uh, it's it's been really uh, rough to say the least. So, um, and as background, I think it's important to kind of understand. Uh, the relationship between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, which is uh, essentially um, you have this longstanding agreement. It was called the PBA and the PBA established the terms where basically the Major League team provides the players and coaches. And then we sell beer and hot dogs and tickets and do, you know, zany stuff in between innings. And um, Major League Baseball wanted to see some big changes happen. And that included eliminating um, 42 teams from the minor leagues out of basically around 160 in the United States. And um, that was kind of their first initial volley. And what's really transpired, you know, um, throughout the minors this past year um, on top of COVID, which meant there was no season. And this and minor league baseball is a turnstile business. So, you know, you're charging $8 for tickets and you're selling $2 hot dogs and the beers are $10, but the hot dogs are $2. Um, but there was no, there, nobody shows up. You have no business. You have no revenue. And on top of that, Major League Baseball essentially uh, crushed the infrastructure of minor league baseball and uh, eliminated 42 teams. And that's basically 42 cities that probably uh, got behind taxpayer funded ballparks or bonds 
uh, and now don't have any team to to play. So it's been really tough. The two teams that I'm involved with, one in here in Richmond where I live, uh, which is double A for the San Francisco Giants, and then also in Omaha, Nebraska, we are triple A for the Kansas City Royals. Um, we're fine in the sense that, you know, we have a team, we have an affiliation. Um, what we don't know in the minor leagues right now is the details of uh, this new agreement with Major League Baseball. And they really hold all the cards. And so um, that's a long-winded way of, of basically saying it's, it's been really challenging and really tough. So, and we're still learning. We still don't know um, uh, all the details about the terms of the new arrangement. So Brian, what does this mean in real terms for the players, yourself, people involved at the ballpark as employees? Um, obviously this past year and moving forward, um, how much of a worry is it? So, um, so there's two parts to that. One is the, the players themselves, they're the employees of the major league team. So uh, for the minor league guys, unless they were in that, uh, that let's call it like an elite group that went to those, those satellite, those taxi camps, uh, they just didn't play. And uh, there's, there's an additional dynamic with the players that um, it is really a fundamental wrong of the game, which is these minor league guys uh, make almost no money. And they're not our employees. So uh, it's something that we, uh, you know, as an owner, I look at and I just think it's, um, it, it's kind of remarkable that uh, Major League Baseball has been able to get away with it. And they're trying to, you know, fix it but not really, um, you know, it's, it's, they're trying to pay these guys more. Um, so, but those guys um, with no, no season that they just didn't play, they go back to doing whatever they do for our folks here locally in town. Um, uh, a minor league baseball team is a small business. So I'll give you a, just some rough numbers. So in Richmond, we have uh, roughly 25 full-time employees. And during the season, you'll have anywhere from 300 to 400 uh, part-time employees that are um, working concessions and, you know, that type of thing. And um, but like any small business, we had zero revenue. We applied for PPP and um, you try to avoid a capital call, uh, but they, they happened all across minor league baseball and, you know, employees got furloughed. We're probably operating at half staff, things like that, that are really tough because the, the, the people that choose to work in minor league baseball, um, you know, it's not, they're not doing it to get rich. So they're doing it because they love the game. They want to be around, they want to be in professional sports. Uh, and, uh, but they put in incredible hours and, uh, and not for a lot of money. Uh, and I, I wish it was otherwise, but um, the beauty in the minor leagues, at least, is that, uh, you know, a family of four can come to a minor league game for less than it costs to go to the movies. And uh, when you think about what it costs to go to a major league game, it's a really, it's a, it's a big gap there. Uh, I'm really proud. I really love what minor leagues represent in, in that sense, but it makes it really tough when you have a pandemic and then you have a partner and they're, and they're not all bad, but they're um, let's call them heavy handed in major league baseball. And so um, we're trying to sort through it. Um, I think we'll get through it, but it's been really tough, especially for the folks that um, that that's, that's their job. That's what they do. That's how they support their families. So interesting. I wasn't asked that question, but I actually have two questions, and then let's go let's focus on the arc for Brian. So, Brian, uh, what's your your what's been your favorite promotion? And the second question is, 
what was it work what was it like working with brandois to develop the brand um favorite promotion for the uh, the minor league teams that we've done like at the ballpark Absolutely. yep uh there's a bunch of really good ones uh i'd say a couple of my favorite the human cannonball um is unbelievable if you i mean you, if you uh you pull it up on youtube the human cannonball because the guy goes around to all these different parks it's pretty it's pretty incredible uh and then i would say maybe uh, a couple uh, honorable mentions after that is cowboy uh, monkeys. They have these monkeys and they ride dogs around the yep. ballpark dressed as cowboys. And it's just, I don't know, never stops being funny. Um, and uh, we did a field of dreams one time where we put in Richmond, they put uh, all these, um, they brought in all these corn stalks. And we set them up in the outfield and that's how the players came onto the field that night. Wow. And cool. um, it was really, really cool. Uh, and so, um, so I really, those are my favorite uh, promotions. I don't know if those are a second. Uh, um, was there a second part to that question there? No, it wasn't that. It was, I was curious because I, I'm a big fan of branding. So working with oh. Brandois to develop the yeah. brand of the Flying Squirrels. Uh, I was yeah. just curious how that process went and how was you there. And then we'll talk about your art because I said that I, I, I love, I've been following them for years on Instagram. And so whenever they came up with the new minor league team, it's yeah. always cool to see the process behind it. So I, I wasn't as close to kind of the, you know, the interacting with them. I was in the ownership group, but our, our guys um, are, you know, they're actual full-time employees that were handling all that. I, I saw the results and um, it, it was really, uh, they're amazing. I mean, they do a lot of these and what they did was they came into town and they really kind of get a feel for the town. And I remember them saying like here in Richmond, um, it's, it's an old town, a lot of brick, there you go, human cannibal. Um, there's a lot of brick, and so they wanted the red. They wanted this brick feel, uh, and a lot of um, you know, as a kind of as a complementary color, they wanted black to go along with it. And so that was how they kind of picked the color scheme. And then they um, they had like a you know name name the team contest, and um, I forget how the flying squirrels came about. It wasn't a, like a fan vote, but. Uh, um, but they, then they came up with a logo and then it actually ended up looking kind of like the, the state of Virginia, the outline of Virginia. Uh, I can't remember if they did that intentionally, but it was, if it wasn't, it was, uh, it was brilliant uh, mistake. So, but they're, those guys are really, really talented and they do a lot of teams. There's do, yeah, I, I'm a hat collector. So I have over a hundred hats. So when the minor leagues exploded with all these new branding like that there, yeah. they were the people that seemed to be behind it all. So, um, so I, I own quite a few minor league hats because of them. And if you see, like here on my wall, I don't know if you can see that I'm pointing to, uh, these. so all the minor leagues do this thing called, it was called Copa de la Diversion, which is basically you, uh, they, created a Latino alter ego and every team in the minors did it. And I, it's some of the coolest stuff. I have a bunch of hats from teams that I don't even own. And I just, I'm such a big fan of it. Uh, and they had a lot to do with this too, I believe. Um, but if you're a fan of, of um, kind of just unique, different, stylish, cool uh, hats and logos that it's uh, commonly just called the Copa, the Copa line of stuff that the minor leagues did. Uh, it's fantastic. And, and when you think about it, it was just an awesome way to uh, to honor and represent. There you go. Uh, there you go <laughs> uh, 
to honor Red Sox. I know that I recognize that part of the game. This huge population, uh, not only in America, but um, you know, in in uh, other parts of the world as well. So, cool. All right, John, you want to take back over? I got my questions in. I'm good. <laughs> Would you like to? Touch base with Ellen, or do you want to? We'll talk with Ellen here. We'll, we'll go back and forth there, so we don't want to feel like left out there. Yeah, um, I know. So it's Ellen, a, I know you're discriminating because you're the Mets fan, but you got to you got to interview her too. <laughs> At least that's out on the table. I'm really glad. Incidentally, that we're here. thank yeah. you for your honesty. Incidentally, we have a comment from Graham Nielsen on the stream to just let us know that there's a plus one for the Yankees fans as well. So that's another <laughs> one. <laughs> we're taking over tonight. <laughs> I think it might be like a secret Yankees fan. Like my neighborhood is so Yankees focused. Um, although to, to go back to what you guys were saying about the world of baseball, I live in Washington Heights and you're as likely to see a Dominican league hat here as you are to see an MLB or minor league hat. Um, so yay for the world of baseball. But was there a question Yankees fan? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Ellen, you're a cartoonist, an illustrator, educator, and editor, um, and you're the author of two graphic novels. Um, you're most notably uh, the author of The Cranklet's Chronicle, am I correct in saying that? Sure. Um, would you like to tell us about that and uh, how that came about, uh, what the feedback's been like? Oh, wow. Um, that's, that's a really interesting and far-reaching question. Thank you, John. Um, so, it up for it. <laughs> <laughs> so when I came back to New York after living in London for a really long time, um, it was kind of like I rediscovered a lot of stuff that previously I might have taken for granted. Um, and I've been a Mets fan my whole life, but while I was in the UK, that was kind of on the on the low key side. It was on the DL. Um, mostly because nobody, I mean, I didn't know that many people who are even that into baseball. You, you guys are exceptions. Although there are some cool baseball cartoonists in the UK. Which one do you um, like? There's, there's, like? there's two I know of. Okay, let's see. Who, who Are you thinking of Samuel Williams, maybe? Ah, uh, yes, yeah, Samuel Williams. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. I nice. actually also really like Olivia Hicks. Oh, I don't um, know Olivia Hicks. I was thinking oh. Tim Cotton. Oh, okay. They're multiplying. They're out there. Um, so yeah, so when I came back to New York and could go to games again, I kind of got back in touch with my baseball fandom. Um, but when you're an adult, you see the game differently from when you're a kid. And sort of to go back to what Brian was saying about the way the majors treat the minors, um, which is a scandal, by the way. <laughs> um, although it's been withheld by the Supreme Court multiple times. It's so crazy. It is really um, unfortunate. The minors, they sued to be paid minimum wage. That's the lawsuit. Uh, they were and suing. And not even that. <laughs> it's really, I'm, I'm on, completely on the player side in this. It's really an appalling state of affairs. Um, baseball basically has a labor law exemption. Um, so they can pay below minimum wage in the minor leagues. And it's really absurd. Um, so that's one example of a situation where baseball is a little screwy. Um, but I had a conversation once with a friend of mine who doesn't like baseball, who, who is a woman. And she was like, well, don't you think it's really sexist? And I was like, uh, I don't think so. I mean, like, I, I you know, like, I, I feel kind of, and then I was like, hold on. 
only men play pro baseball in the US. So that, that is a little sexist. <laughs> so I basically started researching the history of women in baseball, um, which is something I'd never thought about. I never even, it had never even seemed strange to me that the only people I'd ever seen play professional baseball as, a, as an American were men. That never even occurred to me um, until I had this conversation with my friend um, who is the girlfriend of a long suffering Mariners fan. So maybe he, uh, <laughs> maybe he annoyed her a little bit on that count. Um, so basically I started digging to the history a little bit and um, there was a lot of stuff I just didn't know anything about. Um, so I was coming into it completely cold. And um, so I decided to address this issue the way I address a lot of things that confuse me, which is to make a comic about it. Um, and so the first comic I made um, was about a, um, a piece of baseball history and a piece of New York history, which I did not know anything about, which was um, the departure of the, the then New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers to go to California in the late 50s, in 1957. So in 1957, New York City went from having three baseball teams, um, the Yankees, which I, I know at least some of you have heard of, um, the Giants and the Dodgers, um, in, in addition to black baseball teams. So I'm just talking about major league just for the moment. And so overnight it went from having three major league teams to only having one. And the only person on the Giants board who voted against taking the team to California was a woman I'd never heard of named Joan Whitney Payson. Um, she was a minority shareholder of the New York Giants. Um, she had been a lifelong super fan. She went to a zillion games. Um, they used to play in my neighborhood, by the way, um, at the unfortunately now very much demolished polo grounds. Um, and so she was the only person out of this whole board who you'd think loved the team, wanted to, to keep them in New York City. Um, they, she was alone. And I found that to be really fascinating. Um, New York City at that time was going through a period of, let's say, adjustment. Um, you know, it was kind of on the decline as a shipping port. And at that point, it hadn't really transformed into the modern city it is today, which has a lot of different industries. Um, and so people just thought big cities on the East Coast were over and the West Coast was the future. Um, and so basically, um, I didn't know this, but then she bankrolled the, the founding of the New York Mets. Um, and I became so interested in her history. Um, so for the first issue of Crankoats Chronicle, I did a story about Joan Whitney Payson and how she stuck with the Mets during some of the worst losing seasons in major league history and um, eventually became a World Series winner in 1969. Um, and then for the second issue, um, I thought, well, there's only one woman in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, so I have to do a story about her. And I thought this would be really straightforward. Um, I was like, cool, okay, I'm interested in the world of, of Black baseball. I think the Negro Leagues are really interesting, but I don't know that much about them. So I obviously have to do a lot of research. But I took for granted certain things about Effa Manley that turned out not to be entirely true. Um, she has a very complicated personal history, which um, I had no idea about. Basically, she um, grew up thinking she was African-American and then found out as a teenager that the person who she thought was her father, who was a Black man, um, was not her father. 
But by that time, she had lived as a Black person in America for 16 years. And so she was in a very strange position where she could either leave her family and essentially live as a white person, or she could embrace her African-American, I don't wanna say heritage, but the, the sort of um, cultural environment in which she'd grown up, which was basically an African-American neighborhood in Philadelphia, um, and live that life. And in the end, she became, um, she was married to, she grew up, she became an adult. Um, she married um, an African-American man named Abe Manley and she became a basically baseball baroness. She led a team called the Newark Eagles uh, with her husband. Um, they were very successful um, and they ended up winning the Negro Leagues World Series. Um, but then they collided with a huge historical force, which was the desegregation of Major League Baseball. And so all, all of a sudden their players who for years had been shunned by Major League Baseball, they'd been told, you know, you can't try out, you can't be a part of this team. Um, and of course, I mean, I don't know how much people know about it in the UK, but basically for years, no one in Major League Baseball would say that African-Americans are banned. Um, the commissioner would say it's the decision of the managers. The manager would say it's the decision of the general manager. The general manager would say, I can't do anything without the commissioner. And so basically it was a strange situation where nobody would admit that there was this law in place in Major League Baseball, but there was. Um, and so in um, the mid 1940s, right after World War II, New York State changed its labor laws so that you could not discriminate on the basis of race um, in New York State. And Brian Tricky, who is the pioneering owner and general manager of the um, Brooklyn Dodgers, um, actually I should say general manager, um, he said, okay, well, I've been wanting to um, recruit players from the Negro Leagues for years. They, no one can tell me I can't do this now because it's the law in my state. The Brooklyn Dodgers were subject to the laws in New York State and he couldn't justify any longer discriminating against black players. But as we all know, that led to basically the cratering of the Negro Leagues as um, Major League Baseball kind of um, lured players from the Negro Leagues to the majors. Um, so it's a really fascinating story. I did not know any of this <laughs> when I got started. So this was a huge learning process for me. And so, um, and that's how I eventually got in touch with Ted through um, a lovely uh, person who we both know named Anika Oruk, who's a fantastic baseball um, author and illustrator. Um, and so, yeah, so that is my story. So I've got an interesting one for you. There's a UK woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Sorry, I'm so there, There's a British woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So there's two people in the Hall of Fame. <clears throat> Who's that? I, I honestly don't know what you're talking about. That's all right, it's fine. It, it's pretty obscure, so you wouldn't actually know about it. But her name is uh, Margaret Borley, and she started the baseball team in, in Tunbridge like 75 years ago. She's become knighted for it, and she signed oh. the baseball for baseball around the world that's, that's played in the Hall of Fame. Oh, that's fantastic. So she's a dame? I guess, yeah, that's correct. She just got it recently, like the last year or two. So, yeah. Oh, wow. You're blowing my mind. Yeah, yeah, so it, was, it was only because this. it came up recently because someone had said that, that and it was like, oh, that's actually pretty cool because she was one of the, uh, I mean, she started this 60, 70 years ago in Tunbridge. So, you know, it would have been pretty obscure. It's obscure now, but it would have been even more obscure back then. 
Oh yeah. Well, I guess when I say when I'm talking about a manly, she's the only person who's enshrined in the hall. As enshrined a, in the hall, but yeah, yeah. We're still here, here. But yeah, a, I yeah, thought I would throw so, that fact in there. <laughs> there was a period where um, the hall basically decided to make up for decades of lost time and and brought in um, I think two main groups of players and managers from the Negro leagues. And so basically, um, that's when Effa Manley was was brought in. Yeah, Thurman Munson isn't still isn't fucking in, was he? But that's <laughs> you're gonna have to write a letter story. to the editor about that one. I, I think I'm going to have to. Uh, it's a it's a sham, so it's a sham. I say send send, um, send, a, send a telegraph. <laughs> Ellen, it's really interesting that you mentioned the unintended consequence of breaking the color barrier, which was the kind of gouging out of, uh, you know, the best talent from the Negro Leagues. And uh, obviously with Brian, you being on and seeing the impact that Major League Baseball has on Minor League Baseball just in the last year. And it's just a kind of like, it starts to show a bit of a pattern, doesn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> Brian, what is it you think about... I agree. What is it you think Major League Baseball should be doing differently? And its approach to other leagues um, and the way it does business, instead of kind of steamrolling over, uh, whether it be the Negro leagues back then or uh, the minor league system now, and what 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 do they need to put into place to ensure that you know baseball, not just at the major league level, thrives, but at every other level below? Because obviously, without every other level below, without the pyramid, you know, you can't have the top bit, um, and it's only the guys in the top part. They get all the kind of great money and all the perks and stuff like that. Whereas it's the work that everyone puts in from the ground up that really that sends them there. Um, what should they be doing differently? In your you opinion? know, this this might be wishful thinking, but um, you know, I do think uh, that the minor league players they, they should be able to earn a living. You know, and I think they'd still be incentivized to want to get to the next level. Um, and, and mind you, this isn't necessarily the owners that are blocking this the most powerful union that i know of is the major league players major league baseball players association uh and if they wanted uh the minor league players to uh have a greater you know cut they could do that tomorrow uh, but they don't their response would be you know if you don't like it play better and so uh so what happens is you have all the you know uh, these guys who make incredible livings generational type of wealth playing at the highest levels of the game. And then you have this whole, really the, the larger part of the pyramid uh, that, uh, you know, quickly discovers they either go up or they get out. And uh, so I, I think there's something there, but I, I, I do think um, the biggest thing about major league baseball that I, I personally would love to see change uh, would be, I, I think that they've, um, They've priced out uh, the average family. They've priced out the middle class. It's become too corporate. And maybe it's a financial economic kind of machine that they, you know, they, they just, they don't know how to turn back from it. But, but I think that's a shame. I think, you know, if a family wants to go and it's going to cost them four or $500 to take their kids to a game and they can only do it, you know, once a year or something like that, I think it's a real shame. And I also think that's one of the beauties of the, of the minor leagues is that it provides it. Um, so um, I further think on that point um, that eliminating baseball, professional baseball, affiliated professional baseball in 42 markets, um, while maybe it makes economic sense, I heard that they, they each major league team is going to save about a million dollars. 
Um, I think if you're the commissioner of baseball, you have a responsibility to be a steward for the game. And that means making sure that kids growing up in all parts of the country where these, you know, these are usually typically more rural uh, markets that are getting eliminated. You know, those kids, you know, most of them won't get a chance to, uh, to see what a 90 mile an hour fastball or 95 mile an hour fastball looks like uh, live in person. And I, I just think that there's something, um, there's something wrong with that. And so I understand why they make some of the decisions and some of the dollars that are at stake. I just, I, I disagree with it. I, um, I do think it's, I, I will give them credit and say, I do think uh, finally recognizing uh, the Negro leagues as major leaguers uh, was right long past due, um, but uh, better late than never, I guess, is uh, the best thing to say. So I'm very encouraged with that. Now, you mentioned, Brian, that the average major league team is saving roughly a million dollars from that. I think it's uh, important to put that into perspective uh, when you look at a major league team's budget. A million dollars wouldn't pay Bobby Bonilla for the year. <laughs> right. yeah. any, anything else, you know? It's you not, it's not a, it's a I didn't even realize I was still muted while I was screaming in rage. How dare you, sir? <laughs> How dare you? Hey, if there's, listen, I have, to, I have to say, I love Bobby Bonilla. Um, I love Bobby Bonilla to bits, and we'll get into that later. But, sure, um, sure. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's nothing for them. It really yeah. is not very much. Um, and I think that's an interesting perspective that Brian brought up that, that the players union does have a big um, say in this and that they're not, essentially not speaking out for people who are on their way up, many of whom are exploited in many different ways at different stages of their baseball career, just on the chance of making the majors. Um, so I completely agree that in a world where it wouldn't even pay Bobby Bonilla, can we really justify that $1 million savings? Yeah, I mean, that $1 million, how many people's salary would that pay for the gear? Um, oh, for the raise, half of them. Oh, it makes me so sad to see that team get dismantled, but oh. Yeah, Sorry. so what League like Baseball wants to accomplish by all these moves, uh, by trimming down the minor leagues, uh, is uh, they want to limit the amount of travel. So they're reorganizing the league so that teams are closer and, um, and they do want to pay them more. It's still not what it should be in my view, but, um, but they are making some effort in, in fairness. Um, it's just not, everything's about degrees, right? So um, yeah. is it enough? I'm not sure that it is, but they, they want better facilities. They want better food. They want... Um, an easier schedule. There's a bunch of things that they want that are around uh, player development that um, so some of which are good, but um, you know, there's still a big opportunity there. Yeah. I'm only Tad, laughing at Tad. Oh, sorry. Tad looked a little indignant about the food. Time. I agree. <laughs> I was going to say, Tad, I think you wanted to say something. Well, yeah. The question that I actually had is Brian related to major league baseball's decision to include the Negro leagues um, officially. Uh, within their statistics. I can't help but think that there's, you know, another shoe going to drop at some point and we're going to find out why they've done that. And it's knowing major league baseball, there's got to be some kind of financial incentive for them to, to do anything at this point. So any decision they make seems to me that it's got to be financially motivated. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're probably right. And it, it's probably is, um, 
it's probably as simple as, um, you know, responding to the social pressure that, you know, not, it's not just about what was going on with the Negro leagues and um, some of the pieces, I think, Tad, you know, we, you've seen that same piece I saw about the gentleman that was compiling the stats and proving their value, but also everything that went on in, in uh, the United States this year, um, you know, and um, I think they wanted to be on the right side of that. Um, and you could, you know, be a little cynical about shouldn't you've been on the right side of it all along. Um, but uh, uh, regardless, it shows that, um, you know, if enough people care about an issue, you, you can move the needle and you can eventually bring about some of the change, you know, that, uh, that, that you need in there. So, um, I, I hope it's benevolent. Yeah. I feel like yeah. we need to put a pin in that and check back in, in a couple of yeah. years and see what's yeah. going on. I'm also very curious. Right. Listen, you know, you, as an example, down. the, the Homestead Grays, my understanding is Homestead Grays, uh, imaging, uh, logo, everything is public domain. Um, that actually so, occurred to me because merch is like the one of the big preoccupations on their minds right. and that and once they've incorporated the negro leagues into mlb in some way the merch i i just don't want to see a recap of what happened the first time where they kind of like take people who've been making money people in the black community have been making money off of selling negro leagues merchandise for for, for gener generations and now major league baseball is going to co-op that like that's all that's going to be you know basically the same thing all over again it's so i hope it's not that but i do have my suspicions i, I hope you're right too the, you know one of the other things that exists in the game if you kind of look at the game broadly in my view and think you know what's fundamentally right what's fundamentally wrong one of the things that's that's clearly amiss is the makeup of the league um is so different than when we were growing up and you know tad i think you and i are roughly the same age and you look back to you know, the pirates and these teams, but you basically had major league baseball looked like the general population. It was probably roughly 14% African-American, you know, um, and, uh, you know, United U S citizens, right. Uh, so not including, uh, some of the, um, uh, Latino population that came in and, and other people of color. Um, and now that number is, I, I don't know, I want to say it's six, 7%, but it, it's, you know, it's stunning. Uh, and I don't think it's something that's intentional, but I do think it's something that needs to be addressed when you consider, um, you know, what the game means, what the game can bring to a lot of kids out there. There's no CTE in baseball. Um, and I can tell you as a youth coach, I coached youth football for years and uh, as well as travel baseball. And, um, you know, um, when we go and show up with our you know, 20 kids and we go play, you know, in um, parts of town that, you know, are economically depressed parts of town, they'll have 50 kids on the sideline in football. And, and then you'll, you'll play that game on a Saturday and then you'll take your kids and play a travel baseball tournament on Sunday. And, um, and you, you know, you can count on one hand, the number of African-American kids you'll see at the entire tournament. And there's just something, something is, is wrong. And, Major League Baseball has a program called RBI, Returning Baseball to the Inner Cities. Um, but it's just, it's not, it's, it's not moving the needle. We're not, we're not getting it done. So I think if they really want to um, get on board and kind of, um, and, and honor the heritage of all these 
people, the, the, the importance to the game, um, to, um, you know, to everybody, honestly, it wasn't just African-Americans who appreciated these players. This is, uh, I, I think that's something that's really missing and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, and Seems I'd like to give a shout out to Curtis Granderson, who's been a really great activist um, for growing the sport amongst young um, African-American kids in his hometown of Chicago, Yankee and Met. Yeah. Curtis Granderson. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah but it's, it's so frustrating. I mean, yeah. I might not be as young as you guys think I am. I mean, like my, my the Mets team I grew up with had a lot of African-American stars on it. Um, and yeah, it's really changed. And that's sad. I mean, like around New York City, just in terms of anecdotal evidence, you see a lot of really disused ballparks um, that, you know, like even 15 years ago would have been um, would have been in use. And I mean, stuff like travel baseball is fantastic if you can afford it, but it's, it is pretty expensive. And if you don't have right. any extra income, especially now that we're kind of going through a huge economic crisis at the same time as we're going through a public health crisis. So it's super concerning. I mean, I just, I obviously things change, but, and that's fine. But the statistical drop in the number of African-Americans in major league baseball has, is, is huge relative to- Here, Here's an interesting take. I had a guy that, uh here locally, uh, African-American guy. He grew up in Los Angeles and played a little bit of pro ball in the minor leagues. And he runs an academy. And, and um, I was having a cup of coffee with him one day and, and we were talking about this exact thing. And I said, what do you think it is? And he said, I'll tell you exactly what I think. It is. He said, Title IX. And he said, what Title IX um, did in college athletics was it limited the number of scholarships that uh, sports could offer. And so um, while creating equality, uh, that's what Title IX was about, creating uh, equality amongst the, the sexes, what it inadvertently did was it left uh, full ride scholarships as an opportunity in baseball uh, on the outside looking in. So on a collegiate baseball team, there's usually 35 kids on the roster and they have you know, roughly 11 and a half scholarships to divvy up. But if you play football, you have 85 full ride scholarships to offer and basketball, you have what I think it's 12 full ride scholarships. So the way out, if you're coming from any economically depressed area and doesn't have to be African-American, it could be a kid, you know, it could be a redneck kid in the hollers of West Virginia. Um, but it's limited in terms of what the sport does uh, at the collegiate level to, to uh, go get an education. And that's, and he said, that's what happens. That's these kids. They want to go get an education, go play football, go play basketball. There's no money in baseball You can't, you're not going to get a full ride unless, uh, you know, you're the next Alex Rodriguez or something. So. I mean, I hear you, but I feel like that's also a change in the sport as well. Like players who I really loved, like Dwight Gooden or Mookie Wilson didn't go to college at all. It used to be that you were scouted out of high school. Um, so that's also a change in American society. Like, I hate putting it on Title IX <laughs> because, like, well, no, but I, my, I'm not, in, I'm not, if I can put a sidebar in here, my brother <laughs> went to Virginia Tech, like Brian, and ran track, and he used to bitch about Title IX all the time. So I've heard it all. <laughs> right. But what I've it did heard was, it all, all of it. An unintended but, consequence was <laughs> scholarships uh, weren't there and. And then when you go look back down about, you know, where are you going to, um, you know, put your time and effort as a youth player or a high school player, it became, um, you know, you can get, you can get a full ride, get your, your education paid for 
if you play football well enough. You can get a full ride if you play basketball well enough. If you play baseball great, uh, unless you're going to get drafted, and you're getting drafted out of high school, I mean, you are really good. Um, but what if you're just very good, you know, and you, you can play in college? Well, you're, you have to pay, uh, you know, a, the lion's share of your education if you're a baseball player. Yeah, I, but like, once again, I'm just going to say that, like, it didn't used to be as expensive to go to college in the United States. So that's another, like, social change um, yep. that's been huge. Um, like, I just, I, Title IX has done so much good. I really hate to kind of malign it without having a lot more statistical basis. Well, let's, so let me, yeah, so I don't want to come across as being anti-Title IX because I'm certainly not. <laughs> uh, let's just say this. There aren't, there aren't scholarships in baseball. So however you want to. Okay. <laughs> I can get it. I can get on board with that. Um, yeah, there's just been so many changes in the way that Americans view education. I mean, it didn't used to be that you had to get a college education, and certainly not if you were an athlete. It was rare that someone like Jackie Robinson would be, you know, a three-sport athlete in college. A lot of people wouldn't even bother finishing high school if they were any good at baseball. Um, so it's it's a like a larger sea change. I totally hear you, um, but also I feel that like baseball. When you diminish things like the, the minor leagues, there's just fewer opportunities to play. And so there are fewer spots and fewer people can take those spots. And so basically I feel like there are a lot of different forces. I mean, when we're talking about an era where there was the Negro leagues, when there was um, major leagues, the Pacific Coast League, you know, leagues in Mexico, um, like there was just a lot more opportunities for people in North America to play baseball. Um, and so that's been a big change as well, in my opinion. It'll be really interesting when, when all this was happening in the minor leagues with, with Major League Baseball. Um, it was um, there was a dynamic that um, I thought probably hasn't been around for a long time, which was, and I remember thinking, if you get enough of these folks, and and you know, people that are that own minor league teams aren't all millionaires, but they're all typically going to be affluent to some degree, and but people that own Major League teams are typically going to be billionaires or groups of mega millionaires. Um, and it was a little bit of like the, if the billionaires push out enough of the millionaires, they may all get together and form a league akin to what like the Mexican league is like, you, you know, players that go to the Mexican league. We've had players play for us here in Richmond. And, um, when their career ends at double a, they can't get past, they go down and play in the Mexican league and, and they can actually make a, you know, pretty, pretty good living doing that. I mean, and, um, they're not making millions of dollars. Maybe they're making 80,000, 100,000, 120,000, but that's a good living. And um, it felt like th there was a chance that something like that could come about. Um, and if it did, what it would trigger would be uh, this, um, uh, um, what's the uh, phrase for the um, uh, antitrust exemption that Major League Baseball has, which is basically to say that baseball cannot be held accountable. And, and, United States, if you have a monopoly, um, that's it, it can be broken up, right? It's um, you cannot monopolize any industry except baseball. Baseball uh, has uh, antitrust exemption, which means they can rule over and and crush other leagues and everything. And they've, I, I don't think they've really had had that put to the test and kind of seen what that would do to them economically. Uh, but if the, a league like that sprouted up, to your point, you're going to have a, you're going to have a lot of really talented um, 
baseball players who can play professional baseball, maybe not at the major leagues, but really, really talented uh, folks that are uh, capable, um, they're going to be cast out there. And if, not, if the independent leagues got big enough uh, and Major League Baseball did anything to get in their way, uh, they would be taken to task and they could lose that, that, uh, that exemption. Think of it almost as like the XFL and the NFL, right? So you could have a competing league come up. It would be really, really interesting to see. And I know for sure there's 42 teams with 42 sets of owners uh, that are uh, not too thrilled with the way things have, have happened. And so um, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I'm not saying it will happen. I just say it's interesting time to, to think that it could happen. Right, well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. But Brian, we brought you on about your art. Let's talk about your art for a little bit. <laughs> Uh, so the art thing for me is, um, you know, I did it as a kid. I, you know, I, like every kid, I was out there playing sports and hanging with my friends. And, and instead of taking piano lessons, my mom sent me to this lady that lived in our neighborhood. Uh, she was an artist and I took art lessons. And um, so I would go like once a week for, I don't know, a few years when I was eight, nine, 10, 11, something like that. And um, I kind of did it through, uh, you know, here and there through high school and, um, and then I kind of just put it down and I would only occasionally pick it up to, you know, draw a cartoon or uh, just kind of mess around. And um, I, um, and I, I just picked it back up, you know, maybe it was like probably about two years ago now. And uh, I had seen with the, where the uh, Apple pencil and iPads had gotten, I started messing around with an app and saw how quick and easy it was. And I, and I have five kids and, you know, life is kind of, you know, going at hundred miles an hour. So I didn't have a lot of time and I um, started messing around. I really got it, got into it. And then I said, what am I, uh, what should I do? What should I practice on? I didn't kind of know what subject, you know, um, to do. And I ended up picking up a bunch of baseball cards, actually. Stack them here, keep them all here. Like I had an old box of uh, baseball cards, including um, a lot of the ones from, you know, for me as a kid, were like, you know, so critical growing up, 1978 cards, these tops cards. So I was like, I'm just going to start drawing some of these just to practice. And I did and uh, got it going. And then after I'd done a whole bunch of them, I posted it like on Facebook to my friends and got a lot of really positive feedback. And then I posted it uh, like another batch a little later. And I think all my friends were like, we got it, dude. Like we get it. You like to draw. And so I thought, oh, it's probably not the best forum because not all of them like baseball and everything. So I hopped on Instagram a little over a year ago and um, just started posting them and just found there's this really great, um, you know, community of folks that just love the, the pageantry of the game that gets, um, represented in different, you know, art forms. And uh, so just contributing to that, I was fortunate, I promoted a few pieces um, just to kind of see if, you know, that there was um, an audience for it and there was. And, and so it's been a lot of fun and I've stuck to it. Um, you know, the iPad is, um, it's so time efficient for me. Um, and um, that I love it. Although I do want to get away. I, I when I look at folks like uh, Greg Krindler and James Bennett and gosh, some of these fine artists that are out there, there's a bunch of them that were involved in this thing. They're just, they're amazing. And um, I'd love to be able to do what they do and the medium that they do. I just haven't 
committed the time to do it yet. But in the meantime, in the meantime, I just try and post. I saw you had the Bo Jackson there today. I just, you know, I'll get up and I keep a running list of people and uh, plays uh, and places. I love doing ballparks as well. And uh, just, you know, whatever I'm, I'm feeling like. And then um, the, the great greatest project that I got involved with, Tad, was the one that, that you helped organize to do this. That was, um, I, I learned so much. Um, honestly, you know, Ellen, just like you, I was kind of researching these folks. I, I, I looked at it and I said, all right, well, what do I do? Because I don't have an actual painting. I'm not going to paint on a canvas, an original piece. It's a digital piece of, of work. So what would be a good format? And then I thought, you know, if I put together a little like booklet, maybe that would be it. And then I, so I poked around, I realized there was 41 people, uh, who were enshrined in Cooperstown that, uh, were associated with uh, the Negro Leagues, either as players or executives. And I decided to do a booklet of that, including, there you go, F.A. Manley. Um, and, um, and it was really fascinating because as I would do each one, I would learn about them and, and look at the different photos and um, gave me a really deep appreciation for, um, you know, not just the amazing uh, and talented folks that were there, but just, you know, the, uh, the stories behind it. It's it just, you know, it blows your mind. I mean, really, you look back, I'm sure you all feel the same way. You kind of look back and you just think, how, how, how did it even happen that, um, you know, we saw it that way? And, and maybe it's a good thing that we're, you know, our kids are growing up now thinking that way, because I know my kids look at it that way. And, um, but uh, it was, it was a lot of fun to do. I was really honored to be a part of it. And, um, and hopefully represent some of those folks uh, in, in a way that uh, uh, was colorful and, and brought them to life. And, um, and it was certainly fun to do. Brian, I, I just got to tell you, well, first of all, that was, that was a great compliment. Um, I'm, this campaign did so well in bringing people together. Um, and you know, truly, I think when you talk to, to everyone, that's the thing that people call out first is the community aspect. Um, but I'll say uh, I, I split my time between Eastern Washington and the Seattle area. In Eastern Washington, where I live is uh, Cheney, uh, which is just outside of Spokane. It's a very small farm town. It's where Eastern Washington University is. Um, but it is a tremendously uh, uh, um, uh, homogenous white uh, community. And uh, there's a, a guy, man, I get all choked up talk, thinking about this, but there's a guy that I uh, grew up in Little League with there. He, um, he I got uh, involved in the Little League board there in 2005, 6, 2006. And uh, he was a guy who took me under his wing. He had an older kid who'd been in the league for a few years. And, um, and he put his youngest son on my team, my T-ball, my very first T-ball team. And I coached him, I think, for his first three or four years. And uh, probably about that length of time, um, three to four years into, for maybe five years uh, into to my relationship with them, he and his wife adopted two um, brothers, both African-American boys, and um, is bringing them up in that, in that city, that town. And Rob... Uh, is actually the head baseball coach at the high school there now. And so we had this full circle thing where he coached my son for the last couple of years of his baseball playing career. But anyway, 
Um, I bought two books, two of your books. One's right here, it's mine. <laughs> and I bought another one and sent it to those boys. Um, so thank you for all the work that you did. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And, and uh, it, it, it amazing. I mean, to me, at least, I, I don't know if any of you all were familiar with these folks, but the, the stories and the people, uh, it's, and it's really stunning to think, you know, I'm a baseball guy. I've got a pretty good, you know, you sit around, uh, you know, having a beer and kind of can talk about so many uh, great uh, players and uh, stats and, and I thought, how, how is it that we all have such a light understanding of some of these people? Um, you know, I'd heard of Josh Gibson, but I didn't, I, I didn't think, I don't think, in fact, I know I didn't fully understand the depth of his uh, greatness, you know, the stats behind it uh, and, uh, and so many of the other folks too. And, um, Speaking of the, you know, Latin baseball, Josh Gibson, uh, was huge, literally and figuratively, in Puerto Rico and Mexico. Um, according to Sean, he's still revered in Puerto Rico. That's great. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. We've got our hour plus. <laughs> Some of you guys might have work. I could chat to all of you for hours. This has been one of the best interviews I've done in a long time, and you both are absolutely fascinating. Uh, Ellen, I had a quick question for you. Since you lived in London for a while, what was the American thing you missed when you were over there? <laughs> I, I'm going to say baseball. I'll, I'll just say baseball because um, we would come and see games when we came back to visit my parents. Um, my cousin um, was a Mets season ticket holder at the time. And so every once in a while, we'd still get to catch a game. We got to see one last game at Shea before they demolished it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I had spent a year in France um, when I was in college and that was way more extreme um, in terms of not having exposure to American TV. You know, like on French TV, you don't see American shows really, you see French shows. <laughs> Whereas in the UK, there's a lot of American stuff, um, even though it still retains its own identity hugely. Um, it's, it's definitely, I think Americans think if you go to live in London, it'll be the same as living in New York. It's definitely not. <laughs> um, so yeah, I miss baseball. I miss baseball. It's really nice being able to play softball with my husband. It's nice be, to be able to go to games. I've missed it a lot this year. Um, we go a lot. Um, to see the Mets play, even occasionally the Yankees. Although on the, the last time we went, Google Maps tried to kill us on the way home and led us up a raccoon infested staircase, which I took as a hint, I should never go to a Yankees game ever again. You mentioned your Mets games and, and I know you mentioned Herm on your Instagram there. <laughs> I, we had Herm on, Herm's great. Herm Did you actually meet great. up with Herm? I, I mean, Herm has talked me into doing the Coney Island polar bear plunge next year. So do you guys know what that is? It's basically, yep. I'll explain it just for our listeners who may not know what it is. It basic, it's, a, it's an annual event where crazy people, aka New Yorkers, run into the Atlantic Ocean on New Year's Day as a sort of like, hey guys, <laughs> you know, we're starting over thing. I mean, Herm is, okay, I told Herm I would do it if the Mets make the playoffs. So we can put a pin in that as well. 
So we need to check back next season to find out. Yeah, could we call it the loony duck over here? So <laughs> <laughs> what what kind of crazy people exactly, Ellen? Just self-selected, self-selected. <laughs> this is actually my this image that's up is my Mets cutout from this year because the Mets, like in Korean baseball and in some other major league teams, um, let fans put their cutouts in the stand. Although I really regret. Um, I know a cartoonist who's fantastic named Josh Neufeld, and he's a huge Giants fan. He's a native New Yorker, but his family are like the, like they were Giants fans before they left and they just stayed with the team. And he drew his and it was so cool. And afterwards I felt like such a, a dimwit for not drawing mine, but this is my cutout, so. That's a, that's a great opportunity for every artist in this community is to take commissions to draw people's cardboard cutouts for next year because we're sure as hell not going to be. Oh, really? Oh, God. I was about to say, I hope, I hope it isn't necessary. Okay. I don't know how it's I mean, not. Things are really bad here, but I still hope. I still hope it won't be necessary. I don't think it will be necessary for the whole season, but I think yeah. it will be necessary for a large chunk of this season. Um, uh, it's going to be better than last year, I think. Um, but there's no way that everything sorts itself out enough. By will it be like what is it, middle of May or something? I'm probably going to start. No way. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm deluded. I, I I mean, like I barely know what day of the week it is. So I I'm just going to continue that level of delusion up until you know the, the last possible moment. <laughs> So my other question for Brian before we go is, have you convinced the other owners to let you display your art up in the stadiums? Not yet, no, it's funny. I, um, they, uh, what they did do, uh, and I, I, don't, I didn't push them on it because I, yeah, I don't know. It just feels weird like they would, you know, are they doing it because they think it's good? Are they doing it, you know, because they feel some kind of obligation? So I just kind of stay away from it. But what they did do, which I thought was really cool, was um, the guy who runs our team in Richmond, sent out a blast to a bunch of the minor league teams uh, about the, uh, the, you know, the enshrined book and kind of told them what we were doing. And um, so a bunch of them took, and I said, look guys, I'll, I can send you like 10, you know, in, in a batch if you, if you sell them all. And it's tougher for them to sell right now because they were all going to put them in their team store, but um, all the team stores are all virtual right now. So, so they're just kind of um, hanging on to a bunch of them, but a bunch of teams, the, the Bowie Bay Sox, uh, the Fred Nats, that's the Fredericksburg Nationals, Augusta Green Jackets, uh, Montgomery Biscuits, uh, Omaha's got them, Richmond's got them. I'm trying to think. There's a couple other teams. What about uh, the Vermont Lake Monsters, who are officially my favorite new minor this, The Flying Squirrels and the Lake Monsters are really neck and neck for my favorite minor league team name, FYI. Yeah, well, I appreciate that the, the support, too. So, uh, um now I didn't I didn't hear from them, but um, you know, road is long, right? You never know. So um, but Rich, you know, Richmond's got a lot of um street artists and, and muralists, and our ballpark is a giant uh concrete bunker and uh it was built in 1984, I think. Um and uh so we we have a lot of uh you know great uh, murals and things like that. So I'll uh pick my spots you know uh, i'm gonna probably uh try and do uh some a um i do a lot of ballparks major league ballparks uh but i want to start getting into some of the minor league ones too just because i uh just something about looking at the buildings and 
you know, framing them the right way. Something about it, I just, I love looking at, so I like uh, making those. Excellent. Um, okay, let's uh, wrap it up there, Jason. Um, Tad, uh, before we go, uh, what is the website for anyone who wants to know what we're talking about here tonight? Sure, uh, nlbmart.com. Um, we are in the process of kind of rebranding it uh, because our our um, handshake agreement with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum expired on the, the 31st. Um, so we have been using, you know, the, uh, they have granted us use, all of the artists use of the 100 year logo and the, new, and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum logos. So, you know, we're free to, you know, we're artists, we can do whatever we want in terms of, of how much we donate, when we donate and to whom we donate. Uh, but what we're really trying to do now is uh, build more of those relationships, hoping to have another call with Sean Gibson this week. I think you guys know I've been working really closely with the Buck Leonard Association. Um, and so we're, uh, the, the families, um, in light of the recent announcements, several of the families have come together in what um, Rose Hunter of the Buck Leonard Association calls a consortium of Negro Leagues families. And so they were uh, going to be drafting a letter and sending that off as soon as yesterday. Uh, to Major League Baseball. So it's going to be really interesting to see um, how, how the, the community of the Negro Leagues come together. And uh, it's really fun and exciting to be you know, part of that. Indeed, indeed. And uh, we will obviously keep tabs on the developments uh, there with these webcasts. Ellen, where can uh, anyone watching uh, find you online? Oh, wow. Um, my website is littlewhitebird.com because literally no one can spell my last name. So I didn't think that was a good idea as a URL. So it's littlewhitebird.com and that would be, you'll find links there to my Instagram, to my portfolio, to my comics, and also to my shop where I'm selling Cranklets Chronicle 2 and I'm giving half the proceeds to the, um, the initiative that Tad is running because I am really excited about it and thank you Todd for making me a part of it thank you oh, thank you perfect Brian um, where can anyone watching find you online uh, Instagram is the best place uh, that's where I, I post everything and it's uh, hokeycal underscore art and um, that's where I kind of uh, put everything that I'm doing and uh, where can uh, where can they buy enshrined the book is it a link there on the uh, Instagram there's a Shopify link on there. Uh, it's uh, hokeycal-art.myshopify.com. Um, and he's got it pulled up right there on the screen. That's the actual Shopify website uh, to purchase the book. Excellent. Guys, thank you so very, very much for joining us tonight. Um, we'll have to have you both back on individually to have a more long-form discussion about uh, your careers and stuff. It's been very, very interesting to, to speak to you both and an absolute pleasure. Um, so once again, thank you, and uh, have a great night. Uh, or, yeah, well, it's around evening time, isn't it, where you both are? Yeah. <laughs> it's past midnight yeah. for us, so we're all right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, quarter, it's a, quarter, a quarter after, as you Americans call right. it, a quarter right. after midnight um, in the, the UK. So we're going to head off, and uh, I'll probably listen to some Moby Dick. Before You're going to play some FIFA. I know you are, you, John. I'm listening to the I'm listening to the audiobook of Moby Dick right now. Uh, oh, are you listening to the one where different different celebrities read each chapter? No, I didn't know that existed. Oh, it's really good. It's you know, like oh, Stephen Fry and all these like fabulous people. <laughs>
you, you, can, you can go off, Jason. I'm going to sit and talk about Moby Dick for the next six hours. <laughs> You're going to have to start over with this new audio version um, of the celebrities now. <laughs> it's, the, uh, it's the 1987 uh, Frank Muller narrated version that I'm listening to, which is very good. So well, enjoy. It's a fabulous book. Yeah, it is. Uh, cool. uh, so, it's just too long to read. <laughs> all right. So before we go, I, I usually do, as Bubba on baseball, I usually do a, a daily baseball history fact, but I'm taking a break till the season starts there and I'm doing card art. So I didn't get Sean Gibson's card done in time. Uh, so I'm going to show off my two favorite cards that I've done so far. And these are <laughs> Jeff Kunkel card. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know what that one is. The Steve Lake card with the bird on it. <laughs> so but oh for word. each guest, I need to know your favorite player from the 80s and 90s that can give you a card and send it you guys' way. Oh, my gosh. Mookie, Dwight, I'm thinking. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, Brian, you have Lee Mazzilli, of all people, on your Insta bio. I mean, are you a yep. Secret Nets fan? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that Lee Mazzilli was the first one I ever did where I was like, ooh, that looks pretty cool. And when I was setting up Instagram, I didn't even know it was going to happen. I just put it there, and then I'm, I'm too lazy to change it. But I was like, I'm a huge George Brett guy. George Brett was my – even George though Brett, I'm a Yankee, we can do. George Brett was my uh, hero as a kid. Oh, my God. I was that, obsessed with Yankees loves George Brett. I, I know. Well, look, Thurman <laughs> Munson died. Right? Thurman Munson was my guy, and he, he uh, unfortunately uh, passed away, right? So then uh, – to an eight or nine year old, the guy who was just absolutely the, the greatest player on the earth who would come and break our hearts every year was George Brett. And he was this, he was kind of like a Derek Jeter for our generation. He was just kind of this, you know, um, dynamic guy. And, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know how it came to be, but that was. I think you made John's day. He's the big uh, Thurman Munson fan. <laughs> Yeah, and it's also it's worth remembering as well that the Yankees during a lot of that stretch weren't necessarily a winning team. Either. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that you probably you might you might well have run into the same trouble that, that Jason did uh, in his younger years. Uh, you've told the story before on the show, Jason, about following the A's and the Padres as much almost as you followed the Mariners because there just wasn't like an interest there uh, because of the product that they were putting out. No, <laughs> hey, you know, you yeah, my Rupert Jones will be so much. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of mixed messages here. <laughs> All right, so Ellen, who, who are you thinking? We we going to go with Mookie? You know, Lenny oh, well, I did name my cat after him, so yeah, let's go with Mookie. I mean, clearly, clearly, right. I just mailed off a copy of Cranklets One, which has the kind of iconic Game Six, 1986 in one panel and I, I had told this guy there was nothing bad about the Red Sox and I forgot about that one panel. Sorry. <laughs> so so I, mean, I love Luke, Luke, things bad about the Red Sox. But he's actually what his it's his dad and his uncle at the same time. <laughs> cause it's, cause Mookie's brother after we got divorced or something like that. I can't know how it works, but yeah, the same guy's his dad and his uncle. Watch out. There but for the grace of God go any of us. <laughs> Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll both we'll get in contact. We guys have you guys on each because I think we could probably spend an hour chatting you both, no problem at all. And uh, you guys were absolutely a fantastic interview. You guys are fantastic. Agreed. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, guys. Right. Uh, good night, everyone. Good night. All right, have a good night.